Lafayette, the best ticket in sports. Good morning, everybody. How we feeling? Got a great show for you this morning. Jay Walker will be in in the 8 o'clock hour. In the studio, we'll do a little Terrible Tune Tuesday. We'll talk some college football, the future of college football. Talk a little UL as well. John Hendricks. Saints writer for Sports Illustrated, going to join me at 7.15. We'll hit on Saints training camp. Major League Baseball trade deadline is coming to an end today. And, you know, there were there were, there is a lot of movement, right? A lot of movement from teams that want to contend. The Astros get Trey Mancini, Christian Vasquez, Tampa Bay Rays somehow were involved in that one. Yankees make moves. Padres make moves. You know, there's a lot of movement right now. Oh, and the Braves also signed Austin Riley to a 10-year, $212 million deal. Pretty good. I would have done it too. I'd have done it too. You make it 3.9 to 5 mil on a one-year deal and now... You got a $212 million deal signed. Guaranteed. Not bad. But the big thing that everyone is still waiting on, right? After these trades, right? After Andrew Benatendi went to the Yankees and Luis Castillo got traded to the Mariners who gave up a lot to get him. The big thing right now is Juan Soto, who's 23. We had a homer last night for the Nats, who lost to the Mets, by the way. Let's go, Mets. Max Scherzer looking good. Jacob DeGrom returns tonight. He gets a standing ovation. It must be weird for a fan base when you've got a 23-year-old superstar and one of the best players in the world that's 23 years old, and you're basically telling them goodbye in a regular season game. Like, yeah, you can never play here again. Like, what? Where is he going to go? The Dodgers going to do it again? We've seen him walk in and swoop up some players. The Padres are the presumed favorite. Cardinals have a lot of minor leaguers. But the Nats have been pretty tight-lipped about this. So who is the favorite to get them? Look, the Dodgers have traded prospects in the past, and how many times have they regretted it when they've made deals to get the players that they need to get over the top? I mean, if they add it, Juan Soto, good Lord. Good Lord. The Cardinals kind of, uh, you know, I don't know that anyone's thinking they, but they've got they've got an abundance of minor leaguers and players in their system that are appealing to a team like Washington. And then you have the wild card and the Padres. But you stack the lineup with Machado, Tatis, and Soto? Oh, man. This is the last... Big piece here. 
Last big piece. What about the Yankees? I mean, I, I wouldn't put them as, as one of the, you know, I wouldn't put them ahead of the Dodgers, the Cardinals, the Padres, but they're a possibility. What's odd to me about this is just you've got a guy that is the best in the world in a class unto himself, and he's 23, and a team during the season is like, well, that's probably it, and the fans are giving him a standing ovation. Huh. Okay. ESPN Lafayette, best ticket in sports. I am still... taking in everything that we learned a little less than 24 hours ago. And that is Deshaun Watson's suspension. You know, I was reading over Judge Robinson's decision a number of times. And a couple of things I think is going to come from this. One, I think the NFL is going to regret having gone to arbitration with this thing. I really do. Sending it to arbitration, trying to trying to steer clear of it, has only backed them into more of a corner because they send it they sent it to arbitration for an independent judge to look into. They gave them some evidence. She looked into the specific evidence that involved five different um, alleged victims, determined by language of what she wrote that the NFL did establish a burden of proof that he did engage in sexual assault. And for the record, I think the NFL should send a lot of things to arbitration. I don't like the idea that Goodell is still judge, jury, and executioner. But you could say, well, he still is, right? He is. He can, he can up the suspension on appeal to which the NFL Players Association could then appeal themselves. But what it's done is put a bigger microscope and a bigger target on the NFL. By the NFL, I mean Goodell. And by Goodell, I mean the owners he represents. Because now, you were the NFL, you, the NFL, were suggesting a full season, minimum 12 games, huge fine. She looks at the evidence, says that, yep, he did engage in sexual assault, nonviolent sexual assault. And he gets six games and no fine. And the NFLPA says, we're not going to appeal. Yeah. Okay. So what does the NFL do now? They have two more days to decide whether or not they are going to appeal. Robinson got to work with four witnesses. That's That's the evidence the NFL was able to give her. Not, you know, 30 plus or however many has been written. And one of the things in the report that really stood out to me at the conclusion of her decision was saying that the NFL, quote, is attempting to impose a more dramatic shift in its culture without the benefit of a fair notice to and consistency of consequence for those in the NFL subject to the policy. So essentially, we needed to inform you guys ahead of time how many games you could be suspended for committing sexual assault on multiple occasions. That part of it was pretty ridiculous. If 
they had sent it to Judge Sue Robinson for arbitration for, say, a trace of a PED. And DeAndre Hopkins, a small trace. Or a player smoking weed and testing positive. Yeah, I could, I, I, yeah, it'd be different. But then they already have those things established with precedent. So they decided to go to arbitration with this case, which is all over the news. She says six games, no fine. And again, I, I, not agree with the decision, but I'm glad that they actually sent something to arbitration, but it's backfired on the NFL now, who on one hand, they don't want to look weak, and on the other, if they appeal too hard, then the NFLPA appeals back to them, takes them to court for the lawsuit, and decides, okay, we're going to try to air all of the dirty laundry from all those owners that y'all like to just kind of keep hush or not bring in the headlines. We're going to bring it to the forefront. The clock is ticking on you, NFL. ESPN Lafayette, the best ticket in sports. Coming up next, John Hendricks, Saints lead writer and reporter for Saints News over at Fan Nation at Sports Illustrated. Video host for Boot Crew Media and the founder of Faith Beyond the Field. All coming your way. Trevor Penning getting beat consistently at training camp and then getting into it with Peyton Turner. Should the Saints worry about Tyron Matthew? When is that date where they really need him back? Who has stood out the best? How good is Paulson Adebo looking? We're talking about all that and more with John Hendricks when we come back right after this. This is a great Scott show. CSP and Lafayette, the best ticket in sports. The biggest names in sports are talking to you every day on the Rich Eisen Show with me, Rich Eisen. I know! Every weekday from noon to 3, right here on ESPN Lafayette, ESPNLafayette.com, and the ESPN Lafayette app. This is the one place where you can really let the referees know exactly how you feel. This is NFL, which stands for not for long when you make them calls. ESPN Lafayette, ESPNLafayette.com, and the ESPN Lafayette app. Welcome back. Straight Scott Show, ESPN Lafayette, the best ticket in sports. Make it worth your while. John Hendricks always does when it comes to the Saints, the lead writer and reporter for Saints News, for Fan Nation and uh, Sports Illustrated at SI.com. Video host for Boot Crew Media, friend of the program, Beastie Boy supporter, and a man who's been very busy as uh, Saints training camp continues. Good morning, John. How are you feeling today? Good morning, man. I'm, I'm jazzed up. I don't know how you can't listen to BC Boys and not get, like, kind of just energized and feel, like, good. So I'm, I'm better now, man. So appreciate you playing it. <laughs> there you go. I just, you know, a little... little... A little extra cup of coffee there for you. When it cut, you talk yeah. about you know getting energized and jazzed up. You've covered enough training camps. You know you see some veterans there, and they kind of they've done it enough that 
I'm not going to say it's muscle memory, but they're 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 going through the motions, and that's not to say that they're not taking it serious. But it's just look, it's part of the job. Then you got some other guys that maybe they've been there a while, maybe they're they're a rookie, whoever, that are just going like really hard in the paint, right? Like, okay, uh, it's training camp, and this person is not messing around. Who would you say has been the most energized and jazzed up player thus far at Saints training camp? Man, I think it's got to be Paulson Adebo, and there's a lot to choose from. But, look, I think he's been bringing it every single day. Yesterday was an outstanding day for him. Day two, he was one that shined before us. Um, you know, look, he's just been physical. He's been vocal. You could see the confidence brewing from him. You could just see how, look, I, I, he's coming into his own. And, and, I mean, look, you look at last year for a guy that was out of football and they, they take it, uh, take him in late, you know, mid-rounds, if you will, and – um, he had the talent there, and I think you're seeing that talent come through. So, look, he's not scared to back down from a challenge. I mean, challenging Chris Olave, Jarvis Landry, you know, the only receiver in one-on-one to add to Pets was Traquan Smith yesterday. So uh, I think first and foremost is who, who sticks out there. Mario Davis is another one, but you kind of mentioned veterans who might just go through the motions and such. But, man, I mean, he was, he was hitting yesterday. And, you know, we asked him about it after practice, and, that's football. You said you can't get enough, right? And so I think that's obviously a good sign, encouraging. Um, I, I think most of your energy has come from the defense, and I feel like this has been something that we've seen and we're not really uh, shocked by because of this defense and the way they believe in each other and where they can be in this program. So um, I, I think Adebo tops that list. Smoke Monday is another one that jumps out at me, Peyton Turner. Um, you know, just guys like that that are, that are really here and, and are proving a point. John Hendricks, our guest at John J. Hendricks on Twitter. You can get plenty of his content there, his observations, his notes, his nuggets, his breakdown of stuff happening at camp. You know, looking at Adebo, then you got Marshawn Lattimore, and you've got, you know, C.J. Gardner-Johnson. And I'm talking specifically about guys the Saints have drafted, right? I know you added a Marcus May. I know you added a... Um, a Tyron Matthew, which we'll get into in a little bit. But when you look at some guys they've just added since Jeff Ireland has been there, uh, the scouting department, you know, when it comes to defensive backs, John, is it fair to say, you know, this regime compared to the previous one, pre-Jeff Ireland, when it comes to DBs, I mean, night and day? Because I remember some of the guys they had playing at DB week to week and, now it just it feels like they have substantial depth and you know the last guy on the depth chart you know eight years ago probably would have been in a starting role yeah it feels like you're comparing an aston martins to a pinto that's that's the difference <laughs> that jeff ireland has made and so i i mean you know look i remember those days 2014 2015 2016 it was horrible i mean you had guys that were pretty decent like i mean i know Devin bro in particular is pretty good and Keenan Lewis, but, you know, when those guys got injured and got hurt, I mean, you're down to Brian Dixon. You're down to, you know, guys that you're not really <laughs> wanting to start. Uh, I, you know, Devontae Harris is another one that stands up. Stanley Jean Baptiste, all these guys that just you thought were going to be something and just weren't. And so, look, again, now you, you have – it's a good problem to have because you've got deep here at this corner spot. You've got Elante Taylor backing up. You've got – Bradley Roby, who you traded and, and took a, even a pay cut to kind of be here a little bit, and so uh, and CJ Gardner Johnson in contract year, but man, it's it's not just them; it's 
some of these undrafted guys. I mean, Demarcus Fields is a guy that's kind of been on the radar a little bit, showing up a little. Uh, it had a great play yesterday. I still don't know how he got that interception. Um, and, and so, I mean, it's just been a combination of a lot of these guys that have really done well. And, and you know, uh, the way they've scouted, I mean, you remember Trill Williams last year, and, and just speaking in the secondary, you know, didn't really get to latch on because of a physical issue. But, um, you know, look, he latches on with the Dolphins, and he's making a big role for them and playing a big role. So, I mean, a lot of these guys that, you know, maybe it's not, it's not always there right then and there. Um, they're having way more hits than they are misses in this department. And I think this is the biggest thing to take away is that, look, Jeff Ireland, he's, you've got to relish it while you can because I don't think it's going to last forever. I think he's going to get a shot really soon. And, uh, you know, it's going to be a, a bad day when this team doesn't have him in the mix. How much of a role does the, the head coach play in, in this you know, DB, uh, I won't even call it a renaissance because you've, you've had strong DB play for a few years now. It's, you know, you can't call that anymore. But the reason I'm asking you head coach is because it's specifically it's Dennis Allen, who, you know, has coached DBs throughout most of his coaching career. And I, I don't, you know, I, you know the nuances a little better than me, but I look at the college football, right, the college football world. Nick Saban, all oh, greatest college football coach of all time, He's still working the heck out of the DBs and has for years from his time in Michigan State at LSU and Alabama, as well as being the head coach. Like, does Dennis Allen even spend any time with the DBs, or is he just kind of too spread thin with all of the responsibilities that that's more of the secondary coach's job? Because, you know, we knew Sean Payton was the head coach, but guess what? He was working with the quarterback a ton. He was working with the offense a ton, and he was like, hey, defensive guys – Hire a DC. You do your thing. What's Dennis Allen's interaction? And I know it's a very small sample size, John. But what have you been able to gather? Is he still pretty hands on with the DBs, or is is he more defense as a whole, or is he just kind of finding his footing with with all kind of different roles that he now has to has to play as the head coach? Yeah, I think it's just kind of as a whole, right? And and I'd say really you got to tip your hat to Chris Richard. And every player I've talked to about Chris Richard, one of the things that stands out about him is they t- always talk about, man, he slows down the game for him. And he's very, he's very positive in the way he approaches his coaching. He's in there. He's giving praise. And, I mean, the guy, it, you know, being a coach and such a coordinator is one thing. But, again, this is a guy that I expect to be in. This coaching staff has got a lot of gems on it. Wouldn't surprise me one day he's doing his own thing as a D.C., kind of similar to Aaron Glenn. But, you know, Dennis Allen, he played in the secondary. He knows that, right? And so I think that's part of where you see they really made this mark and improvement and started, I think, with Aaron Glenn a lot to fix this this secondary. Chris Richard has come in and done a fantastic job. Dennis Allen, you know, look, he's going to handle the play calls on defense as, as of right now until he's not. And so – uh, look, he's still active in there. He still does a, a lot of things, but clearly, you know, as the head coach, he's got a lot of things that he's working on at the same time. But man, I think you got to tip your hat to Chris Richard. This is the guy who's getting these guys in shape, who's helping these guys out the most, and has really just taken a lot of these veterans to another level. ESPN Lafayette, best ticket in sports. John Hendricks, our guest right now, talking Saints. He has been out at training camp. Um, you mentioned Tyron Matthew briefly earlier, or I guess I did. 
Um, you know, I, I everyone, I think, listening, heard the quote, read the quote. Dennis Allen essentially saying, look, we're going to give him the time that he needs to deal with his personal issue. And, and we're going to welcome him back with open arms when he's ready. And I think someone pushed, pressed him on, you know, what what is, is there sort of a deadline of when you really need him back? And he said, yes, but he wouldn't specify uh you're just guesstimating here but uh what 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 is sort of the end date did you think Dennis Allen might have in mind of okay we we absolutely need you back at this point yeah i mean here's the first thing to know about this is you know this is something ahead of training camp we got obviously and this was an excuse for a a family related matter right and so it's kind of- now it's personal, like it's it's something with Tyron, you know, specifically. And so, look, again, Dennis Allen talking about it that, you know, we're going to give him the time he needs. And, and look, you know, Tyron's roots are here in, in New Orleans all around. So we don't know the extent, but I know a lot of people have tried to figure out what's going on. It's speculated a lot. Rumors are going crazy. Talking about maybe Tyron, maybe all this other stuff. Who knows? Uh, but I would just say that, look, Tyron's a veteran, and he's an impactful guy. He's studying the playbooks. He knows what to do. Obviously, you want him there at camp. Communication's important um, and gelling. But, look, you're just a few days in camp, and I don't think we're at a point where you say, man, this is, this is a real big concern. But if they're playing, you know, preseason game against Houston and he still hasn't hit the field, I'd be a little bit more concerned. And if we get to a point where we're in Green Bay, he's not even around the organization or anything, then I'm really concerned. So I think we could sit on this probably for this week and, and see how things evolve. I mean, because they have, you know, it's, everybody's kind of on six days. But that's kind of what I would go to is that, look, give him the benefit of the doubt. He's a veteran guy. I'm sure the Saints have figured some things out with him. He's a respected player. Um, but, you know, he's a guy that also, I, for lack of a better phrase, I don't think he needs a, 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 a thousand reps in practice to be good. And so – We'll see how it plays out, but you know, I think once you start getting into that post preseason game territory, then that's really where you might want to be a little bit more concerned. John Hendricks, our guest, he is the Saints lead writer uh, for uh, Saints News over at FanNation and SI.com, talking to Saints training camp. Uh, you mentioned you were impressed with Peyton Turner. I know last year uh, he had an impressive camp. Uh, John, and then, you know, he was inactive week one. Uh, and then he dealt with injuries after that. What, I mean, look, I'm you're there. I, I just see highlights, right? I talk to people like you and others who are up there close and personal, but I heard good things about him last year in camp. How wide is that gap? How how much better is he actually looking this year? And, you know, why why would you tell Saints fans to maybe maybe not be skeptical that, you know, he will take a bigger step here in year two. Yeah, look, again, I think um, this is part of just his development as a player, you know, working on the nuances and techniques of his game, whether it's for hand placement or whether it's for how you rush the quarterback or how you get after and get off of a block or anything like that. I think those are the things that you you see a lot more from Peyton Turner. And, look, the physicality is going to be there. I mean, this guy is hard to block. Trevor Penning. You know, it's kind of a, I don't say a stalemate, but there was a good rep where, you know, for instance, Turner kind of gets blocked a good bit and then um, is still able to affect the plays and stuff. But, 
you know, and, and obviously the, the extracurricular activities going against the, the rookie, um, you know, pinning, it, it just kind of took an exception. But, but I, I think you see him that obviously he's going to be big in a rotation. I'm not thoroughly convinced that he's not going to play some inside, too, um, just because of when they do sub-rush packages or do things like that. Because we saw Tano Passignon be that guy last year. Um, especially when they go to like three linemen and such. And so it gives them a different look, if you will. And so, look, I, I think you see him that he's, he's fit, he's in shape. First of all, that's the biggest thing to be encouraged about. He looks good out there. Um, he's, he's obviously moving well and just able to get off a lot uh, as far as blocks and just getting after the passer. He's been in the backfield. He's doing a lot. And, of course, here's a telltale fan. They want to see it in the preseason. They want to see it consistently continue to grow. And so I feel like, you know, Turner's a guy that's been making a play or two here or there. Uh, it seems like, you know, ever since he started practicing. So I think that's where you could say, okay, look, I think this guy gets it a lot more. He's been more in film. Uh, and so I, I think he's got a, a bright future ahead of him. And look, you're going to need him, man. I guess I think this fast rush for this team is, is one of their best assets on this roster. They're fully healthy. This is a, a scary scary thought to know who's coming at you from a, up to, uh, after the quarterback. You know, you mentioned Trevor Penning and a guy that kind of got into it briefly with Peyton Turner yesterday. Penning had a rough day yesterday. Got beat a number of times, right? Big nasty, as I call him. He's raw to an extent. You know, they're looking at a more long-term first-round pick left tackle, but looks like they're kind of rolling with James Hurst here. How what would you be surprised if Penning is starting Week One of the season? Like, at what point do you think is a realistic expectation for him to step into that role? Yeah, I would kind of be surprised. And look, I've been telling a lot of people that look, I, his, his pass protection is where he had to work on the most. And you know, again, it's not that he's not talented, but you know, we talked to Landon Young, Ryan Ramchuk. You know, Eric McCoy, just about all the offensive line, and just really what we've learned is that, you know, when you're in those split decision moments, how do you handle some of that? And, you know, Penning is, is a guy that, uh, is, look at the situation that happened in 2013 with the Saints. Is you draft Toron Armstead in the third round, you had, you know, Charles Brown in there, and, you know, it reached a point where enough was enough. And I think James Hurst is a veteran who has earned the shot. I think he can do extremely well in this role. I think that, you know, fans need to, to just kind of chill just because I know a lot of pressure is on a first-rounder to, to kind of perform and do this type of thing. But, look, Penning is a guy that is only going to get better. Doug Marone's done a fantastic job with all these offensive linemen so far. I think he'll get there. Maybe it's not this year. Maybe it's late in the season. But, I uh, you know, I, I kind of pumped the, the brakes on it for sure. There you go. Uh, you, you know, I just I feel like he's got – if something were to happen to Hurst, uh, and hopefully nothing does, but if he was thrust into that role sooner than he needs to be, I actually feel like there's more of a um, uh, microscope from the fans on him than Chris Alave, which which a lot of people don't agree with me on that. I think for Alave, not just because he's looked good in camp, but I think he, as a rookie receiver, he steps into a nice role because you have Michael Thomas back, you have Jarvis Landry, and so it's not... Like, had he been on the roster last year and they're saying, do something immediately, help us out, and you have all these different quarterbacks, like, he kind of, you know, I know that Dante Stallworth's career with the Saints didn't turn out long-term the way that many hope, but John, as you remember, his rookie year, he was a touchdown machine, there were 83 jerseys everywhere, 
and 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 he was kind of the toast of the town for a little while, and then late in the season, they you know they lost three straight games, missed out on the playoffs. We don't need to rehash the whole 2002 season, but I just I feel like pinning. If he's not playing, there's going to be fans that are like, well, what's the deal? First round pick. And if he is playing, you know, one mess up on the blind side, I don't know. I'm not expecting Alive to go out and drop a ton of passes. Like, what what young player on the team do you think has, I guess, uh, the biggest microscope on him from a fan base standpoint, right? Like, you need to, you need to get something done here, right? Or, or our patience is wearing thin. I would agree with Penny, and you know, look, I look at examples, and you don't have to go far. Look at all lot of, of first round tackles that have been, or just first round offensive linemen that you just have had that, you know, thing under a microscope. I think about Eric Flowers. I think about, you know, even the guy that's on the Saints roster, you know, higher pitch, that Forrest Lance, who had a lot of expectations with the Chargers, and it just didn't work out, right? And so. Look, there's a lot that can shape the confidence of our offensive linemen. I know that, you know, you look at recency bias and you look at Ryan Ramchek and how well he did. And obviously, no, nothing to take away from Ramchek, but, you know, he's on the right side. And when you're dealing with uh, protecting the blind side, best tackle, you're typically going against the team's best rusher. And so, um, look, I, I, I don't say that from a confidence perspective that it would kill him, but, you know, at the same time, you, you want to be smart about where you're at. And, again, uh, I think he's got a lot of pressure on that just because where you were taken and just what they used to get him and, uh, you know, the pitch because you traded up to get Olave, right, and, and kind of mortgage. So I don't think that's a big deal because you can get that compensation back if you get tra- Sean Payton gets traded or, you know, if his rights get taken away or, or whatever and move to another team. But, um yeah, I think it's probably more so on pinning just because you're a first-round offensive lineman. You've seen the team around them that, you know, uh, it, it was funny because this team yesterday, we talked about uh, Dr. McCoy, and he could be the only guy, if, it, if everything went the way it did in week one, he could be the only guy that's not a first-round pick on that offensive line. It's kind of crazy to think about that. Man, yeah, they they need to perform this year. Um, uh, two more questions for you, John, and we'll let you run. We appreciate you taking the time, be following your stuff out at Saints Training Camp at John J Hendricks on Twitter. Everybody, give him a follow. Uh, Alvin Kamara, his court date pushed back. Um, the expectation was that you wouldn't see him at practice yesterday. He was there, found out later, pushed back to I think September 29th. What is your overall scope of Kamara? Um, his, uh, you know, potential suspension at some point. And, you know, a lot of reaction to the Deshaun Watson news yesterday, but that's arbitration. That's not NFL-related. Do you think it will have any kind of impact whatsoever on Kamara, even though, you know, his potential punishment is for something, you know, very different? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, it's interesting timing because the Saints are going to be, you know, in London, that time frame. And so, uh, you know, pushing back 60 days, this is the third time the court hearing has been pushed back. And so, I, you know, maybe this thing could go to Mayo's way, but the way this, this is shaping up, he may not get suspended this season. I mean, if it does, it could be late in the season, which would be kind of tough if the Saints are in a playoff position. Um, or it could just bring her into next season, right? And so it's never ideal. And, and I think one of the things that, you know, the video ever surfaces and everything that happened, I think it's going to draw a lot more eyes, right? And so, um, you know, for Camara is, is a guy that is here um, and he's doing everything he needs to. He's, he's Alvin Camara, right? And so obviously I know 
everybody wants to put this costume and, uh, you know, and the work through it, but the more it lingers on, uh, you know, the more uncertainty that it is that he made Jason suspension this season. But, look, you know, under the personal conduct policy, the new one that the NFL has, has set up, six games is kind of what you would say. And, and, look, they don't have to be convicted uh, of a crime to face that penalty is, I think, the verbiage that you really want to, to pick up on. So, you know, and obviously there's arbitration that can come from it and, and such. But, look, I just think it's kind of odd and eerie that this whole thing happens. He's still allowed to play in the Pro Bowl. Um, and, you know, nothing to, to take necessarily aside here. But, you know, just all something is a little bit weird in this whole situation. And more people are involved. And so we'll just have to kind of see how it plays out. But, look, it kind of just feels like, you know, it just keeps lingering that we may not face a suspension this season. All right, John. Lastly, Jameis Winston. Um, you know, uh, I guess I could ask you how he's looked. I mean, you know, it's it's he's saying all the right things. He's working hard. He's throwing some picks in practice. He's throwing some good balls. It's you know, little little bit of this, a little bit of that. What what is your realistic expectation for Jameis Winston in twenty twenty two? Yeah, look, I, this team's going to live, lead, and die by what Jameis Winston does. I, I think that, and I know a lot of the Vegas odds what, eight, eight and a half wins maybe. I want to take the over. I know maybe the pressure is more on him than it is Dennis Allen to deliver this season. But I expect him to have a good season being that comeback player of the year conversation. Are we saying that Winston's going to throw, you know, 35 to 40 times a game and have 5,000 yards and 40 touchdowns, you know, at the end of it all? I don't think so. I think he's going to do well. I Anything less than 4,000 yards and, uh, you know, at least 25 touchdowns, I, I think that would be kind of a little bit disappointing to Danis, if you will, especially with all the tools they have at wide receiver and just, um, you know, uh, on this offense in general. So, look, I, I think he's in for a huge season. I think I want to, I definitely want to see him go 17 games because I want him to, to kind of defeat that 2019 narrative of, man, this guy's the 30 for 30, 30 picks, 30 touchdowns, all this stuff. And, and such, but I'm I'm a Jameis believer. I do know that you know practice is not always indicative of how you do uh, when it comes to game situations and and such. But you know we want to see him do well in practice. We want to see it translate over to the field. And ultimately, uh, you know when it's all put together, uh, just kind of like a Pete Carmichael situation. When you see him blow it up in one game, then you kind of like okay, no problems. I've seen all I need to see. Everything's good. John Hendricks has been our guest. Check him out at John J. Hendricks on Twitter. Check out his stuff over at SI.com, Fan Nation. He is the Saints lead writer and reporter for Saints News, video host for Boot Crew Media, his video recaps of training camp practices and whatnot as well. He puts that up on social media. Great insight and uh, great information. Always great talking to you, my friend. Um, continued success. We'll be checking out your stuff and look forward to talking to you again in the future. Thanks, Scott. You got it, John. You got it. Have a great one. That is John Hendricks. We're in August. Football is happening. You know, we are 39, 30, no, we're 40 days away from the Saints opener against the Falcons. 40 might sound like a lot. We are 32 days away. From UL football kicking off, 
you know, LSU football is not far away. College football is 30 days away as far as that opening Thursday goes. Jamborees are going to be in several weeks. I mean, I know that teams still need to report in college, and there's still a lot happening, but it won't be long, guys. It won't be long. LSU is what? They're playing uh, Florida State on that, that Sunday, aren't they? So 33 days away from that one. Be here before you know it. It's a common opponent this year. LSU and UL both play the Seminoles. Speaking of college football, who is going to take a big step back this season? Sometimes you just got to look at the schedule. Strength of schedule plays a big part in that. I'll explain next right here on the Great Scott Show. Plus, open phone lines. Hit me up, 337-269-1077. Don't go anywhere. We're right back. Right after this. What, you, what are you saying? When you check the TV addict, don't mean to this, don't mean to bring static. When you cling onto your grandma's house, grab your back street friend to get loud. Bullet doors off inches, grab it with the pinches. And no, I didn't retire. Snatch it off with the needle nose pliers. Hey, sports fans, this is Rich Eisen reminding you to catch the Rich Eisen Show every weekday from 12 to 3 on ESPN Lafayette. Now, back to more of the Great Scott Show with Scott Prather. Hold it now. Welcome back into the Great Scott Show. ESPN Lafayette, the best ticket in sports. Jay Walker going to join me in the 8 o'clock hour in the studio. Looking forward to Jay coming in. We'll do a little TTT. Talk some college football. College football. We're 30 days away. From that first Thursday night of college football games. We're 32 days away from that first Saturday. It's almost here, y'all. Is there anything better than football? I mean, as far as American sports go. It's just the best. It's the best. It's the best. All right, some teams that will likely flop. In 2022. So right out the gate, you could say, oh, well, this doesn't count as a flop because last year, well, they kind of flopped. Eh. Last year, Auburn started six and two. And then, yes, it fell apart on them a little bit. and They ended six and seven. Auburn this year will finish worse than six and seven. They have the hardest schedule in America. And, you know, there is some friction between the coach and the players. They've got a home game against Penn State week three. I expect them to lose it. And, you know, at Georgia, at Ole Miss, A&M, at Bama, you got, they got to play LSU, they got to play Arkansas. They, 
No. Yeah, they'll win their first few games. They're playing Mercer and San Jose State. But Auburn, I think, finishes sixth in the SEC West. You know what? No, check that. I think they finish seventh. I think they finish last once again. Now, last season, they finished last along with LSU. Both went three and five in conference, six and seven overall. You know, LSU, Brian Kelly lost a lot of players to the portal. They've got some returning starters, but he's added some players. And, you know, he's brought probably, he's a big thing there is just kind of changing the layout, establishing his own culture. I, I don't think LSU was competing to win the SEC West by any stretch, but I also don't think they're finishing last in the SEC West like they did last year. I think that's Auburn's spot, and I don't think a lot of people would pick Auburn there. I think a lot of people would go Mississippi State. But you've got Alabama, and it will be good, and then after that, you know, who finishes third? It's up for grabs. You know, a team like Rutgers last year that, that you know, finished around 500, they're taking a big step backwards. Kentucky, yeah. Remember Kentucky was 10-3 and three last year? They finished second in the SEC East behind Georgia. Second. Mark Stoops has gotten the Wildcats to six consecutive bowl games. And that's after six straight losing seasons. But, you know, they just... I, I, now there's expectations. And again, I look at that schedule... I look at Kentucky as far as number of games they won last year, there's going to be a drop-off. They're not winning double-digit games this year. They're not. They're not going to be the worst team in the SEC East. I mean, you know, I mean Vanderbilt's there. You know, Missouri, South Carolina, they, they, they have a good chance to finish ahead of both of them. But Kentucky at one point last year was 11th in the AP poll. They return only 11 starters. They usually outperform expectations under Mark Stoops because he's one of the more underrated coaches in America, but they're not winning double-digit games again this year. They're just not. So again, a team taking a step backwards, yeah. Now, their non-conference schedule is, is extremely weak. As far as SEC schedules go, you know, they, they have to play Georgia at home at the end of the season. Outside of that, I mean, they play Louisville every year, right, in the final game of the season. Louisville was middle of the pack. I mean, they, they, Kentucky, they get Vandy, they get Mizzou, they get Tennessee, they get South Carolina, they get Mississippi State, they get Florida, but in week two, they get, an, I mean, as far as SEC schedules go, it's manageable. So a lot of people would disagree with the take that Kentucky's taking a step back, but when you look at what they did last year, I'm just here to tell you, they're taking a step back. Only Missouri has a weaker strength of schedule in the SEC overall than Kentucky. Only Mizzou. Strength of schedules, though. 
you know, if you're looking at the toughest schedule based on predictions, all the computer models, Phil Steele's rundown, LSU's sixth in the country this year with difficult schedule. Louisiana, 130 out of 131. How that plays into the Sunbelt West predictions, the Sunbelt overall, the expectations. We're going to get into all that and more next hour as I'll be joined by the man, the myth, the legend, Jay Walker. Don't go anywhere. The Great Scott Show continues after this on ESPN Lafayette, the best ticket in sports. Scott Show. And as they head into the final furlong, all of the other radio stations and radio hosts are left in the wake of a keen turn of speed by the great Scott Show, the champion. With Scott Prather. Steal the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome in to the Great Scott Show. Eight o'clock hour going up on a Tuesday. That means my friend Jay Walker is in studio with me. Me, hello. Me, bruh. A little TTT coming up later. We do. How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. We have, what'd you say, 32 days? 32 days till UL kicks off. Four weeks from Saturday. And um, it's, um, it's just about here. Yep. Uh, the players will report Thursday. I will talk to Coach Desermo Thursday morning on these airwaves at 7.15. I'm looking forward to that. I am, um, I'm actually going to talk to him this afternoon at 2 o'clock, and that'll be a podcast that'll be up on our, our uh, thing. Tell him I said hi. I will do that. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's here, man. I mean, you got 30 days until... The, that Thursday night begins. UL kicks off in 32. A lot of teams kick off. Um, LSU and Florida State on a Sunday night, 33 days away. Uh, 40 days away from the Saints kicking off against the Falcons. There's some, I don't know why 40, you could say 39 and it's like, ooh, it's close. You say 40, it's like, man, that kind of feels like Lent. That kind of feels like, well, I mean, once you get into the 30s. <laughs> feels like Lent. Once you I like get, that. Once you get into the 30s, it's like, oh. All right. Um, and, yeah, you know, I mean, people will get, you know, football fans will get aroused Thursday when they watch televised football practice of a Hall of Fame game of backups and the classic rivalry of the Raider, the Las Vegas Raiders and Jacksonville Jaguars. But point is, Jay, you, 
you do get to August, and I look, we're going to talk some baseball, and you got the trade deadline today and the Juan Soto sweepstakes and all that. But um, August is kind of when that that football, that itch really, you're, you keep scratching it, but it keeps itching. It's like it doesn't stop itching until it, it doesn't stop itching until it kicks off, but you just start scratching it a lot, I think, every August. That's absolutely true. And, and you know, I, I saw somebody post on Twitter this morning, just two more sleeps until football, and I went, yeah, no. You know, I mean, you know how I feel about that. I, I probably will not watch one minute of the preseason in the NFL. Well, there's, you know, I know they only have three games anyway, but, um, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll pay attention to the Saints, you know, because it's a talking point here, but I always say, like, when it comes to preseason, I kind of watch it like a horror movie that I hope has no actual plot. Or it's like in a horror movie when the guy opens or the girl opens the fridge and the camera's just staying on that same shot. And then when, when they close the fridge, you're waiting for the killer behind. Like, I'm just nervous anytime, like, a key player does something or any player. And I'm like, oh, God, oh, God. Okay, they're okay. They got up. It's fine. I'm just nervous someone's going to get hurt in the preseason. You know, preseason football for me is like like the 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 island where there's a bunch of guys and they haven't seen a, a woman in forever and a plane load of women <laughs> get off the plane and they all look like Mrs. Shrek. It, it That's what preseason football is for me. <laughs> hey, they've been on that island for a while. They're excited. Uh, yeah, well, and some folks are. They're excited. You know, the guys say, hey, two more sleeps till football. <laughs> Good. <sighs> the Hall of Fame game. Um Two more sleeps till till UL reports. Uh, I know college football getting into fall camp. The Cajuns schedule this year. It's you know you make schedules years in advance. In terms of strength of schedule, it's it's not as high as it has been in the past. Um, a good thing for a team that's working in a new starter, all that stuff. Uh, it, it can't it can't hurt, you know. Um, you know, it just so happened that, you know, you schedule a Florida State, which is a, a great name, but it's a team, uh, it's a program that's had, what, three losing seasons in a row. You know, Eastern Michigan, when that game was scheduled, they were coming off a bowl game. Right. Um, you know, Rice, you know, Rice usually isn't great, but that's a game that you got to try to play because it's, a team within driving distance that your fans can go and see, and they're going to come and, and, and return the visit. And, you know, you're always going to play an FCS team. And, you know, Southeastern now, Cole Kelly may be gone, but I think Southeastern still has the capability of putting up points. What What made the schedule not as good is you look, Arkansas State won two games last year. Texas State won four. ULM won four, South Alabama won five, Troy won five. Okay, so there's nobody in the Western Division that had a winning record last year. And then you get a three-win Georgia Southern team and and Marshall from the other side. So, you know, I think the conference schedule hurt the Cajuns almost as much as the non-conference schedule did. Being in the West. Because let's face it, okay, this business of strength of schedule is all predicated on what these teams did a year ago. Sure, of course. Not, not what you think they're going to do this year. 
that schedule is going to be more difficult than what folks are saying. Well, if it's not, it means it only moved back one spot. Yeah. So, yes, I mean, at this point, it, it really has nowhere to go but a little a little up as far as strength of schedule goes. But I don't know, man. It, like you said, it's years in advance. I'm not condoning, oh, go out and schedule an easy thing. It's You, you do it years in advance, and the West this year, is, I mean, you look at the Sun Belt East, there's no question it's just a much stronger division than the West this year. And I and, and maybe some teams will surprise us, good or bad on both sides, right? Oh, they're better than we thought. Oh, they're not as good as we thought. I would be very I would be shocked, Jay, if in December we're like, you know what, the West was better than the East this year. I would be shocked. Yeah, I I, I think that I would be a little surprised myself. Um but I now but I'll say this, I don't think the disparity is as big as people are making it out to be. And why is that? Because I think, once again, it's predicated on what these teams have done a year ago. And I, I'm i telling you, everybody in the West is going to be better this year. Every team that's behind the Cajuns, and the, they're all going to be better. Troy's going to be in a bowl game this year. South Alabama is going to be in a bowl game this year. You know, I, hell, Terry Bowden thinks ULM's going to be in a bowl game this year. Good for him. Yeah. Um, I think Southern Miss will improve. I think Southern Miss will improve. And I, so I don't think the disparity is as big as folks are making it out to be. You're going to see some teams in the West jump up and bite some of those teams in the East. I'm just saying. Louisiana kicking off their season in 32 days. You mentioned it, Southeastern. Um, it, overall, what do you make of, of the, the schedule layout for UL this season? You don't have a traditional buy this year, which is because of the midweek. Yeah. It's, it, you know, even in the past when they've had midweek games, they've still had at least one buy in there. So I remember, I think maybe it was Coach Napier's second year, they had a buy in like week two, which was which was a little odd. But the fact that they don't have a traditional buy is is different. But just the layout of it this year, I I got nothing. You know, there's nothing about the sky. You know. The the thing about the schedule that jumped out at me is your senior night is on a Thursday. Um, you have two home games in November, but they're five days apart. And you close with two on the road, and that hasn't happened in a while. Yeah. I mean, your last home game is November 10th. On a Thursday, early right. November, and then homecoming being on October first is, yeah. is is different. Um, and then you get in October, and you've got those midweek games on the road. Um, it is uh, I. The senior night thing was a little different, but I, I think as far as the layout of it and strength is, I, I I think there's a reason a lot of people think the Cajuns will win the West this year. Um, mm-hmm. And when I look at the schedule, that's a big big part of it. It's why I kind of wanted to lead today. But I, I think the thing that helps the Cajuns, I'll be surprised if the next two teams in line aren't Troy and South Alabama. Okay. Okay. I think these other teams are going to be better, but I don't know that any of those other teams are going to finish ahead of Troy and South Alabama. What helps the Cajuns is they get them both at Cajun Field this year. There you go. Um, yeah, they got to go to Southern Miss. They got to go to A-State. They got to go to ULM. Um, but you get Troy and South at home. 
ESPN Lafayette, the best ticket in sports. Scott Brather, Jay Walker. We mentioned it 32 days away. Um, ben Walrich, Chandler Fields. Is that going to be the continued number one talking point from fans throughout fall camp? Yeah, I think for fans it will be. I, you know, because the that's what fans do. I mean, who's going to say hike? I mean, that's a pretty important thing. Um, you know, I, I, I believe the development in fall camp up front is the biggest story, but nobody, nobody's going to talk about that because they want to talk about who's going to say, it is the biggest key to the entire season. Absolutely. The biggest key. So you answer my second question is what, what in your mind is the biggest storyline? And that's, that's hard to quantify in a camp, but so is everything else. I mean, it's, you could say, oh, well, it's easier to do it with quarterback. It's I don't know that it is. I think you you do your best, but until you line up and play a different team and it's and it's counting and everything, there's certain things you just you do your best to find out, but you don't know until it kicks off and the real bullets are flying. And that O line, how well they perform this year, I think will be the biggest dictator of how good the Cajuns play this season. I think you're right. I the the I think Okay, if you look, A.J. Gilley's back, all right? Carlos Rubio was a starter two years ago and then got hurt and didn't play last year. So I count him as a returning starter because he's been a starter. Dave Hudson, toward the end of the year, was starting uh, over on the right side. And so, you know, I think you've got three guys with quite a bit of experience. I don't know anything about this transfer from Michigan State. Hopefully he's he can... You know, if if not be in the top five, at least be one of the quality backups. Because my issue with the offensive lines, and not so much the five guys that they're going to put out there, it's the guys behind them. You got to have eight. And I don't remember who the the offensive line coach was, but it was under under Ricky Bustle. And he said, I just tell him, give me a pair and a spare. And that means eight. So they got to have eight. I'm not sure where the eight are. I know where four of them are, but I don't know who the other four are. It has been since I've covered the team, which is not nearly as long as you, Jay, but going back to 2005, it's been the most consistent unit in the program through Bustle, through Hudspeth, through Napier, the offensive line. It has always been strong. They have always had all-conference, I want to say multiple all-conference players on the O-line, Every single year, it has been a strength. No one in the last 16 years has said, well, I tell you what, a big a question that I have going into the season is the offensive line. Never have heard that one time in the last 16 years. Well, it is the number one question going into you, this season. You, you heard that under Bustle because you didn't know that they had two walk-ons who were going to be all-conference <laughs> performers in Chris Fisher and Brad Bustle. Now, um, they were already there when I, when I got here. Yeah. And and so, I'm. I, I agree with you that you know it's for the first time in a while it's not perceived to be a position of strength. Um, doesn't mean it won't be. Just doesn't mean it won't be. But as of now, it's as far as question questions go, it's it's at the top. And of the and you know Mike's been asked about it, and and he says, look, he said we look, we got talent, we got guys that can play. They just haven't played a lot because they've had guys in front of them. All they need is experience. And it's not exactly a kind of unit where you're 
the O-line is kind of like quarterback in that it's rare you're going to be mixing and matching and bringing guys in and out. Mm-hmm. You know, on a D-line, up front, outside linebackers from a rushing standpoint anyway, maybe not in the middle, you're going you're gonna to be bringing guys in and out probably throughout a game. And, yes, a starter might get more reps, but wide receiver last year, oh, 16 guys could play. Well, they did. They had a lot of different players. It's not like on the O-line you're, like, mixing and matching. Correct. And so you just don't have that opportunity for guys to get, you know, a lot of those reps. But you look at what you lost and a transfer and all this other stuff, and I, I understand why you and I agree and other people are like, let's see. But I, I guess by nature of the position – when fall camp starts and we're getting reports, it's like, this guy's looking good. This guy, you know, he's working on it. He's trying to get better. Well, we had this drill in practice today, and we saw this, and we saw the last 15 minutes, and this guy looked like this. I just don't know that we're really going to have a feel for this old line until probably, you know, we get into the game at Rice or at ULM, and it's like, all right, now now this thing, now we see where this thing is. Yeah, the you know the worst case scenario is they go out and they start getting linemen hurt. Yes, and that that would that would oof that would not be good. Not at all. ESPN. They got they got to stay healthy because I think they're thin. ESPN Lafayette, the best ticket in sports. All the conference realignment, Jay. We talked about it briefly a few weeks ago. Where what what does college football look like ten years from now? Oh hell, I don't know. Is it? Is there any? sense that it's heading to I, I I heard a coach say this not a football coach okay and I don't want to reveal the coach's name not a football coach but a coach of a D1 sport say you know I think 10-15 years from now you're just going to have another division of college sports that's kind of pay for play and you know intramurals and, and then you're going to have this other thing and that's like I, I think you got to figure NIL out, and 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 football coaches are kind of asking Congress yeah, to help with that. I think there's some things you need to figure out, but I I don't think you're gonna. I don't think ten. I think you're gonna have a couple of super conferences, no doubt. But I think we're going to a route where there's gonna it's it's gonna be intramurals on one side, and you know another tier and student athletes on the other. I think if the two super conferences, and I'm talking about the Big Ten and the SEC, I think if they have their way, that's what's going to happen. That you're going to have two super conferences, and then you're going to have, as you put it, intramurals. Um, I think that's the route that they want to go. Now, the thing that that I maintain is you're going to have haves and have-nots within conferences, which you, which you already have to an extent. But, you know, even at Kansas, they're saying, okay, Oklahoma and Texas are leaving. You know, we could... We could be better. We could, you know, I mean, because look, when they had, um, who's the big guy? Vince, Mark Vince, Mangini. Mark Mangini. You know, they were, in a, they were in a New Year's Six Bowl game. They were in a BCS. They were in the Orange Bowl. Yeah. So, you know, it's not like it can't happen there. But I think what's going to happen when you start talking about who's got the real money when it comes to NIL, I, I think you're going to see a separation within conferences. I think in the SEC that schools like Kentucky and South Carolina and Vanderbilt and the two Mississippi schools, I think those schools are going to be in trouble. 
as far as football goes. As far as football goes, because they're just not going to be able to generate the NIL money that, you know, Alabama and Georgia and Florida and Texas A&M and LSU are going to generate. I'm not sure. I think Arkansas belongs in the have column, but I'm not sure about that. And you're going to see it in the Big Ten with Purdue and Northwestern and in Illinois. I mean, you know, you're going to get division within the conferences. And that is the thing that I don't think a lot of people are talking about. And if you want to get NIL money from boosters or supporters or a booster that owns a business, whatever, if you're at Kentucky or you're at Illinois, a lot of those boosters are like, yeah, but I ain't doing it for football. I yeah. do it for basketball. Right. And we're not, I mean, well, we can't, we can't win a national championship in this thing. I'm going to do it in this thing. Right. You got a few at Vandy? Well, I mean, we do it in baseball. Um, yeah. I, I, so you just feel like the haves and have nots within the super conferences will only be stretched farther. Oh, yeah. To where, in some instances, those almost become like a a guarantee game or something. That maybe they're upset every now and then. They just don't have to write the big check anymore, and it's in conference and counts like that. Yeah, I um, I don't I don't know where it's going. I just know that for those out there hoping that the train will slow down or stop, it's not. It's the genie's not going back into the bottle. The toothpaste is not going back in the tube. Yeah, and it, it's thinking back to the last ten years, how much college sports and. Within this state, Jay, high school sports has evolved with all the state championships and class A, B, C, D, private, public, playoffs, all that. And you look at what's happening in college. It's not like 10 years ago we thought any of this was coming. 10 years on one hand, you know, decades a long time. But in 2032, I, I'm with you. I got no idea what this thing is going to look like. No idea. I just know money and TV contracts are going to be the driving force behind it. Sure. ESPN Lafayette, the best ticket in sports. You ever spent money on something and regretted it and then felt like you had to use that thing just because you spent money on it? Oh, I'd have to think about that, but I'm sure the answer is yes. I feel like that's Jerry Jones with Ezekiel Elliott. (laughs) It's like he has a press conference and he's like, well, Ezekiel's got to be the featured back. Just letting Mike McCarthy know how to how to do his job, how to coach. Uh, talking NFL briefly with you for a moment. At what point in the season, if the Cowboys aren't great, does the constant Mike McCarthy needs to be replaced, Sean Payton needs to come in? Like, it's the Cowboys. At what point does that start? Probably with their first loss. They could be 0-1 and it's going to be. Yeah, oh, yeah. That dude, he is just... I, Sean Payne is going to be coaching somewhere next year. Might you know, be Dallas, thing, might be somewhere else. The thing that's interesting about Jerry Jones is for all of the criticism that he gets, and he really deserves most of it, one thing the man has always been is loyal. You know, he's held on to coaches way too long, in my opinion, um, ever since Jimmy Johnson. Um, as long as they're submissive, he holds on to them for a well, while. Well, yeah. Uh, but, you know, I mean, look, he stayed with Jason Garrett a long time. Like I said, as long as they're submissive. And um, so I 
So I, I don't know that. And there's the other thing, okay, that you're talking about. Do you think Sean Payton is going to be Jerry Jones's yes man? I, I've, that's been the biggest hangup for me for a while. And people say, well, Parcells did it. And Peyton likes to fancy himself as a Parcells. I'm like, Parcells did it for four years. And there was a, a power dynamic that felt odd. And it did feel like Jerry did kind of get out of his way. But as Jerry said, look, I'm, I'm 80. I don't have that much. I don't have enough time left to deal with this. Um, we got to win and we got to win now. I think Peyton would consider it. But I don't think Peyton's like, oh, I got to get there. I got to get just there. Right. If there are options... Peyton's going to go where he has a, a quarterback, a good quarterback, and that w- I think that'd be number one on the list. And second on the list for him is how much autonomy can I get? There you go. If the Chargers fire their young coach next year and they have a okay season, I think he would. I don't think it's like, oh, no one cares about the Chargers. Everyone cares about the Cowboys. I don't think Sean Payton cares about that. I think he's like, I know to win in this league, I need a great quarterback and if I can have the say and not have to deal with as many headaches, then that's what I'll take to, and a pretty big fat paycheck. Best case scenario for the Saints is there are a couple of teams that want them. And then, you know, you can kind of drive up the price a little bit of what you get in return. Speaking of the Cowboys, um, Sportico put together their list of the most valuable franchises in sports in the world. Dallas Cowboys, number one, $7.64 billion. Mm-hmm. In American sports, number two on the list, the Yankees at $7.01 billion. Third, the Knicks, $6.12 billion. Fourth, the Warriors, $6.02 billion. Fifth, the Rams, $5.91 billion. Sixth, the Patriots, $5.88 billion. Seventh, the Giants, $5.73 billion. Eighth, the Lakers, $5.63 billion. Ninth, the Niners, $5.18 billion. And tenth, the Red Sox, $5.07 billion. Um, you've got Silicon Valley. You've got Boston. You've got L.A. You've got New York. So you have that in common with all of them, except for the number one team on the list, the Dallas Cowboys. Now, this has to do with real estate holdings, public documents, interviews with owners, bankers, lawyers, consultants, all of that stuff. So you can look at those other franchises, and some are glamour franchises, obviously, like the Yankees and the Red Sox, and others aren't, like the Rams. But you can look at nine of those ten and say, this is based on market as much as it is, you know, the team name. Sure. Except the Cowboys. The Mavericks aren't on this list. They're not They're not hot. They're not... The Dallas Stars aren't high up on this list, but the Cowboys are the number one in the world. The Lakers and the Rams are on the list. The Dodgers are not. That's that's interesting, isn't it? I don't know how much of that has to do with Dodger Stadium, real estate holdings, all that, but I would say, I mean, half of the list is NFL teams, too. Sure. Uh, the Saints were 25th among the 32. 32nd, the Bengals, who are in the Super Bowl last year. It's not about winning and losing. It's about a lot of other things. Now, when you win a lot, it helps. Certainly the Warriors' uh, dynastic surge in the last decade has changed a lot with that franchise. But if that dynastic surge happens in Memphis, I'm just here to tell you it's not as valuable. Being in Silicon Valley, being in the San Francisco area, has a whole lot to do with that. Cost of living, real estate, all that stuff. Um, but 
Cowboys fans were uh, bragging about this on social media, Jay, that they were number one. I'm like, is that when you have to brag about how much money the owner takes from you for having won three playoff games since 1996, I don't think you realize that by bragging about that, you have a clown nose on. Mm -hmm. The Yankees, okay. Yeah, we 27. Look at that. 27 championships. We got them. Look at those banners. We got this value. We got that. If you're a team that's not good and you're on this list and you're like clinging onto this like as some kind of badge of honor, I don't I don't get it. I don't get it. That's not me. Speaking of money, the Braves yesterday signed Austin Riley to a 10-year, $212 million contract. Good move. Oh, it's a great move. Good move. They're making moves, they're making trades. Astros acquired a number of players. I, I got to say right now that the team that has set itself up to be really good for a long time are the Braves. If you look at the players that they have under control for at least four more years, it's like m- most of their star power. Yeah. So I'm, you know, kudos to them, man. They, they're, they're set up nicely. You've got the Nationals who last night, I mean, it, it's weird to me that you have a 23-year-old superstar hits a home run in a regular season game in August, gets a standing ovation and essentially a goodbye. Mm-hmm. It's, just, it's just, it's odd. Where do you think he's going? Is it, is it L.A.? Is it San Diego? Is it St. Louis? You know, there were, I read an article that said that, you know, those are the teams, but there are other teams who could get involved today Yankees. on that. Um, I was going to say San Diego. Um, and then San Diego went out and, and made the move to get Josh Hader. And they, had to, and they had to give up some stuff in order to get him. Um, and because of that, that gives me a little pause. But there's... The, the the guys who run the Nationals are very familiar with a lot of these San Diego prospects. And I think that there are a lot of them that really, that they really, really like. So if I was going to suggest, if you said, okay, you can only say one team, I'm going to say San Diego. Um, Dodgers are in the mix that, look, it's going to be an expensive get. I mean, no question about it. I mean, one of the players that, that's being talked about that would go to Washington for the Dodgers is Gavin Lux, who's like fourth in the league in hitting right now. And, you know, I'd like to have Juan Soto, but I don't think I want to give up that dude. You know, that plus, you know, several prospects. But Um, how many times lately has your Dodgers given up a prospect for a great player and regretted it? Well, you know, several. Okay, but this is a little bit different because this is getting a guy that you have control over for a couple of years. Yeah. And so this isn't a rental. No, you're trading and you're paying. Yeah. You're trading and you're paying a lot. But, man, you mentioned San Diego. I mean, Machado, Tatis, and Soto. Teams are making moves. Meanwhile, the Mets... Max Scherzer looked good last night. Jacob DeGrom in the lineup tonight. He's back. Not like they're making the huge trade like some of the other teams, but 
They're adding the best pitcher in the world. Can he stay healthy is obviously the biggest question. But I, I think the 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 race to get as much as you can before it's too late, gearing up for the postseason, like this is going to be a extremely competitive postseason. Very sometimes you've got one that's top heavy. I think this whole postseason is just going to be heavy. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you're looking at some series and matchups where it's like, oh, boy, they gave up a lot. Can they even get out of this first round? Um, there, there are a lot of teams that are not they're, – they're, they're playing to win right now. I'll tell you, you know, when you, when you look at the, the postseason for baseball, right now to me, there are only two teams – that when they play for the first time are going to be really heavy favorites. And that's the Yankees and Astros. I think that there's enough depth in the National League to where nobody can feel safe. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think the Yankees and Astros are in pretty good shape once the playoffs start. Um, No love lost between those two. No, no. And, and, (laughs) and, and and I'm telling you that, uh, the Yankees have turned into the Astros bitch. I don't know how else to say it. And who would have thought that, right? Um, so, yeah, that's going to be uh, – look, every baseball fan in America wants to see the Astros and the Yankees in the American League Championship Series except for the hometown fans of the teams that are going to be in the playoffs that aren't the Astros and the Yankees. Oh, people like to see a uh, good, good scuffle. They like to see in the playoffs. You, you don't want you don't want kumbaya in the playoffs. Oh no, no. You know what I mean. You want you want some nastiness. You want some nastiness. Look, last year in the, uh, I guess it was in the division series. Look, watching the Dodgers and Giants with the two best records in the National League getting after, and it's the Dodgers and Giants. Oh, that was good stuff, man. You mentioned, like, in the American League, the Twins have lost, I think I, I, I think I have the number right, 15 playoff games in a row. Wow. They could win the division this year and still not, and not win a single play. Like, it feels like they're going that route again. Now, that division is crunched up and there's a lot of different teams that could win it but I I tell you this Minnesota sports fans they got it rough man they got it rough okay as far as championships go the twins did it back in what was it 91 yeah I I can't I the Vikings have never won a Super Bowl they have been on the wrong end of some really you know as far as close but no cigar, that's happened to the Vikings. A no, the season can't end this way. Thank you. No! <laughs> Paul Allen, now he's got to pull up some. I mean, there's there are some moments in there where it's like, oh, my God. And, you know, the Timberwolves had Kevin Garnett at, you could talk about his time in Boston. He was at his absolute peak. He was the MVP of the league and the best player in the league when he was in Minnesota. Um they got to the conference finals one time and didn't really do much of anything. Never been, you know, to a finals. Haven't been to the playoffs much. Last year was, 
You know, I think they've been to the playoffs twice, maybe the last 13, 12 years. Um, and the Twins, I mean, they've had some good teams, but never just 15 straight playoff losses in a row. That's some pretty rough, rough goes for the fans. And I don't, I don't know enough about the NHL to comment on the Minnesota Wild. But, uh, you know, I guess from a WNBA standpoint, their team has won uh, some championships. But as far as the rest of the sports go, I mean, if you're a Vikings, Twins, T-Wolves fan, uh, you, you have a right to complain. You have a right to be mad when a Boston fan complains about anything. You know what I mean? Is it an, what, is it annoy you when what fan base complaining about losing a game annoys you the most? Mm. Losing a game. Man, I'm, I'm having a hard time staying away from 50 miles down the road. I got you. I got you. I mean, you've, you've talked to LSU fans a lot over the years. Mm-hmm. See, for me, it's not, and I, I look, I know a lot of great LSU fans. What's annoyed me from some LSU fans over the years, Jay, is it when they lose, it's when they win and then complain. Well, those are the ones that I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa wait, wait a minute. Look, that that's the one that would, is like, come on, 20, you lose, okay, you're going to complain. I 2011? Is that the year? Th- that we did, we did radio shows and Every day, people were calling and complaining, and did, okay, no, no, they no. went. That was that was two thousand. That was two thousand and seven, I think. No, the year that they went undefeated and then lost to Alabama in the championship. They complained. The, they were they were just dominating everyone that year, up until that game. Yeah, and people complained every week. I can't. I remember the 07 and, and, season and, and, and when I'll, they won it all, and, where and, it was and, it was constant. And, I, and I'll tell you why. It's because they didn't like the black quarterback. They well, Jordan Jefferson didn't. There was the he didn't enter this the the games until later in the season. Jarrett Lee kind of started the season off, and then there was a quarterback controversy. And I don't know. I don't know if I remember it. The but same they they bitched did. every week, every week How about the offense. Yeah, yeah. But they dominated a lot of teams that year. I mean, sure Tyron Ma- Matthew was, was unstoppable. But, but, the, that but the reality until is, they got to the but the reality is, here they went out and dominated teams, and fans weren't happy. There was a segment of fans that sure, weren't happy. Sure, that's it's 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 and that's I, we're talking about LSU. We interact with lots of LSU fans. That's what gets me annoyed, and it's not just with any fan base. Is when it's a win, and it's like. Any win. It's one thing if you're favored by 30 and you win by one and you, you have concerns. I'm not talking about that. It's whenever you're winning and you, the next day or during the game, it's just nothing but complaining, complaining, complaining. That drives me crazy. Well, and, and I'll t- but I'll tell you this, okay? Last year, there were a lot of Cajun fans in that boat too mm-hmm. because the Cajuns would go out and win and either they weren't winning by enough or we had to we had to – Go and read and talk about everybody who wanted to talk about what Levi Lewis couldn't do. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It, it's it's some. It was it was one of the one of the stupidest years as far as some Cajun fans were concerned. Oh well, the plus fifteen in turnover, and if it wasn't for that, that's part of the game. Yeah, 
They yeah, were just and, and winning. You know what? And you know what? Longest winning streak if, in the country right now. If they're not plus 15 this year and they lose some games, and, and we're going to point to turnover. Oh, that's an excuse. Expectations, man. Look, that's, I, and, that's and what it comes down to. It, it did. You know, it, look, the reality of the situation is they, they played, what, seven one-score games, and they were 7-0. and Close margin there. Yeah. Alabama fans, Jay. I mean, no football team has enjoyed more success in the last 12 years than them. Have you ever heard any clips of the call-in radio shows after a Bama loss? No, I'm when sure, Ole I'm Miss sure beat bad. them two years in a row the second year, there were literally... <sighs> There would there were fans that were starting to sign petitions that Nick Saban needed to go. Yeah, and then after wins, it was well, this isn't good enough. I'm like, there's some I can't, the the best seasons you would think for a fan base is a championship season, and then the next best is when you vastly surpass expectations. There's something about having large expectations in place that can sour the joy of winning. Mm-hmm. Don't do you know, that to yourself, fans. At, at least, you know, Alabama and LSU, at least they've had years where expectations were met. Can you imagine what it's like to listen to sports talk radio in Austin, Texas? Oh, I've been on when, some shows in Austin. When, you're, when your school underperforms year after year after year, after year, and you say, well, wait a minute, maybe Mac Brown wasn't that bad a coach. The the most troubling statistic as we get ready for TTT, the most troubling statistic for any UT football fan, I don't care what they say, was this past year in the NFL draft. What do you like to say about Texas, Jay? It's Texas! It's Texas. Biggest budget, everything's bigger in Texas, all this. They didn't have a single player drafted. That right there is complete and utter failure in every facet of the football program. There is no world we live in where UT should have a season where not a single player on their entire football team gets drafted into the NFL. That's insane. You want to talk about failing to reach expectations. Oh, my God. Is there – no team – it's funny. I mean, you know, we, we talk about the Dallas Cowboys in the NFL a lot. They, they, they usually overpromise and underdeliver. But at least they, like, do well in the regular season sometimes and then mm-hmm. blow it in the playoffs. I mean, Texas is just not – they're just, they're just under-delivering left and right all the time. All the time, and – you know, it's Texas, and and they, but it's year after year after year after year. Look, they go out win 10, 11 games. I don't know if their fans are going to know how to act. I'd rather not find out. <laughs> I understand. I don't even have anything against Texas, honestly. Like, I don't root against the University of Texas. I'm not trying to bash on them because I have any kind of ill will. Not at all. I. It's a great city. It's a great campus. It's complete failure in football. Uh-huh. Complete failure. 
Not a single draft pick. It's unreal to me.